No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. The second half of our Defiant show drops us back into the peak of the pandemic, where our hero is taking Zoom calls and setting office policies from the solitude of his home. As he struggles to define what's right and what's wrong while navigating a breakup and suburban judgment, he finds someone that he's willing to break the rules for. Here is Imaginary Rules, written by Marco Staffney and performed by Mancho Alvarado. This is a good one for you. Okay. What's the weirdest fact you happen to know? <laughs> Sloths are the only animal that doesn't fart. Oh. Follow up. <laughs> why? Do we know why? Uh, the digestive system, I think, is so slow that it doesn't need. Uh, oh. Are you making that up? Or is that no. <laughs> it's a fact. It's a fact. And how do you know this? Oddly, not because I work at a zoo. <laughs> uh, I, I went to another show like this, a caveat about butts and farts. Oh. And so I learned all about butts and farts. And I love uh, it. That fact. And now you're passing that knowledge on to that us. That cast. Yes. Passing the gas. Yeah. I mean, I'm passing the gas. That is a perfect note to kick off the second half of right. our show. <laughs> Marcus, you can take a seat because here is Imaginary Rules, written by Marcos and performed by Moncho. A thin blue rope was the only thing between us and adventure. Dangling between two crooked stakes, the makeshift barrier was an embarrassing whisper of a rule. Without a second thought, Daniel jumped over, and with the grace of an ibex, began to jet along the top of an old stone wall into the views of the Pacific. The fear of watching him fade into the distance propelled me forward and soon I was bounding along the cracked stones too, following my new love through places that were supposedly off limits. We joined dozens of rule breakers who were exploring the secrets of Lands End Park. Ultra-chilled Californians with masks, scarves, and bandanas loosely draped around their necks as if they were accessories, not necessary protections from the invisible villain ravaging the world. It was summer, and we were collectively ignoring the pandemic. There was a DJ. <laughs> Scaling deserted stairwells, ruins, and barren cliffs, we reached a giant rock that sat suspended over the bay. As the water crashed against the rocks and the sunset, I looked into his eyes and said, I think you should be my boyfriend. I thought we already were, he said coyly before kissing me. If I died right there, on that rock, in that bay, in that park, I would have died happy. I lived in Vermont when everything shut down. At the time, I was someone who was in charge of actually shutting down everything, of sending all the emails that started with, out of an abundance of caution, we'll be closed for a few weeks. <laughs> I led a science museum in the Green Mountain State and was responsible for the well-being 
of not only our staff and volunteers, but for many of the families and other organizations who looked to us to set the pace of how we responded to the pandemic. With information rapidly coming at me, I was charged with making the rules on how we handled everything from temperature checks for employees to what public messages we're sending out about staying safe or getting vaccinated in our community. I hosted public health forums on the effects of COVID-19, virtually of course, and worked to get our messages out to the public so that they could be informed with up-to-date information on what to do next. Except nobody agreed about what to do next. So I had to make it up. Most of this work for the first few months was spent in a giant Victorian house in the middle of a White River Junction. I owned a palatio, four bedroom home with two floors to roam, a home office to take endless Zoom calls in, and a four mile loop that I could walk where I encountered nobody. No need for masks because there was nobody to breathe on. I had a partner of 14 years who I could call a few times a week, but who stayed 250 miles south in his Brooklyn apartment so that he could follow the rules of what Vermont was saying to New York, which was don't travel, don't go anywhere, stay inside, oh, and wash your hands. When you make the rules, you quickly discover that they're imaginary, without accountability, Rules are little burrs in our minds and make us uncomfortable when we break them. Intentionally said to play with our morals. I was raised Catholic, so I'm well versed in imaginary moral rules. Don't eat meat on Fridays in March. Don't eat anything an hour before church. Don't skip church or you have to go to confession. Don't skip confession or you'll go to hell. <laughs> There's no such thing as moral police, but when authorities put something in your head, it's hard to get it out. In Vermont, the best our governor could say was, do the right thing. And the people who did do the right thing, they also tattled through old school listservs and Facebook comments and tweets and nasty emails. I saw so-and-so not wearing a mask at the grocery store. <laughs> She had people over for dinner. You know, he went to a red zone to go shopping. He shouldn't be at work today. That tattling led to shame. And that shame in a small town pressed its thumb so hard on the back of your neck that you could be paralyzed into never leaving your house, never breaking the rules, and never getting close to another human. I had experienced this being openly gay in a six-year long-distance relationship. It didn't fit the norms of someone my age. It was okay to be gay as long as you were married, had four kids, two dogs, <laughs> and drove to hockey practice every morning at 5 a.m. in your Subaru. The small town liked that I was with someone for 14 years. They wouldn't have liked that our relationship was open. With schools closed, the educators at the museum began making science videos to entertain kids at home. One video, anthropology featured two people strolling, struggling to escape a disentanglement puzzle. Each person holds the end of two ropes that have been looped together and try 
through silly twists and turns to unloop the rope and finish with each person holding the ropes parallel in their hands. You can never let go of the rope. Those are the rules. What makes the puzzle fun is that most people make the tangles worse, getting drawn in together in awkward embraces. I have begged my partner 14 years to take his remote work calls in my four-bedroom, two-floor home with me. By the time we got into month three of being apart, we had entangled so well that we were barely holding on. I had been alone for three months. My rules about surviving had a shift. I dropped the ropes. As a lapsed Catholic, I realized that eating meat on Fridays wouldn't send me to hell. So I began taking a few calculated risks. Daniel had been passing through on his way to live in California for a few months, by chance, and a little yellow gay hookup app we met. From my mudroom, I could see his perfectly postured frame strut from his car down my driveway. When I opened the door to my mudroom, he politely took off his loafers before coming into the kitchen. I noticed how his brown eyes looked like they were dipped in honey, and something told me to kiss him as he were as if he were the one. We didn't make it past the refrigerator. We met again a few days later, and then again for a weekend, and then again on my birthday, and on the next day. <laughs> it was, is the kind of chemistry you want to savor. And we're on a predetermined timeline. So we decided to play house for a few days before he left to soak each other in. Playing house may be a child's game, but it gave us the opportunity to share space and time together, to watch each other brush our teeth, to talk till so late that you fall asleep exhausted in each other's arms. I felt as unusually, I felt an unusual ease that I had never experienced in that four bedroom, two floor Victorian. Home was laying my head on his chest, not in the house that the small town said I should own to throw dinner parties for acquaintances. Before he left, he asked, what is this? I don't know, love or something like it was all I could muster, too grief-stricken at the thought of him leaving, or worse, ghosting. But on his trip to California, he kept showing up, kept texting me pictures of him on his travels, kept calling me when something exciting happened on the road, Within a week, I clicked the purchase button on the JetBlue website for a ticket to San Francisco. In pre-pandemic times, a quick trip to the West Coast would go completely unnoticed by anyone around me. But in COVID times, it meant that I had to orchestrate a series of half-truths to not endorse small town shame. We were back in the office, so my absence would be noticed. And though it was summer and numbers were low, Every article and every paper started with, should you be getting on an airplane right now? <laughs> the rules stated that if you crossed state lines, you had to quarantine for 10 days. In the early months of the pandemic, it was completely bizarre to take off 10 days without sending up a flare that you were definitely bathing in COVID juice. <laughs> but what happened if people knew? Would they understand that I was risking travel for the possibility of love? 
or something like it. I scheduled everything to look like I was taking a week or so off to recharge away from the screens. Where are you going? Um, somewhere, I devilishly say with a fake grin, hoping that they'll drop the subject. Staff confidants told me that there were rumors that I was traveling to Florida to have an affair with another museum director. <laughs> another theory was that I was going to a radical ferry retreat in the wilds of upstate Vermont. I didn't deny any of it. I just kept them guessing. I told myself that it wasn't lying because it wasn't, was it? Did I have an obligation to tell people that I was going to California to follow my heart? Was this like skipping confession? I made sure I was as safe as possible. Double masks, hand wipes, scheduled post-trip quarantine time with pre-scheduled COVID tests. Once I arrived at the ghost town of an airport, I sat alone and content with my choices in the terminal. As I scrolled romantic I can't wait to see you, Tex. My phone rang in my hands. A colleague needed to talk to me about a massive project she was working on. I had to take the call. As she apologized for bothering me on my time off, a loud booming voice came over the loudspeaker saying, Passengers to San Francisco, please make your way to the gate. We'll begin seating in just a few moments. It was clear that she heard. It was clear that she paused after she heard. It was clear that her pause was filled with shameful, silent accusations. She resumed her questions, and I made some joke and shut down my phone. I, I had been found out. But what did she find out? And what would she do with that information? The answer was nothing, because as it turns out, she, like all of us, has to accept or reject imaginary rules on a daily basis in our new COVID world. I defied someone's rules, but I made it to California. I kissed a man on a rock, looking out to the Pacific. I made it back to Vermont. Three weeks later, so did that. Next up, we hear a heartbreaking series of letters to loved ones. Through imagery, history, and imagination, our second storyteller longs for answers and actions about the ongoing crisis and cruelty at the American borders. Listen as Marco Staffney reads, Dead Familia, written by Mancho Alvarado. Up for the very last one. It's all about switching things up and now you tell it. See if you can read my handwriting. Ooh. What about, no, you tell it, made you so most nervous. <laughs> nervous? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Reading out loud someone else's story. I was like, oh my god, I gotta get this right. I gotta get, I gotta do it justice. And I'm judging out. But it came out nice. Yes. <laughs> I love it. And now for our final story of the evening, switching it up, here is Dead Familia, written by Mancho Alvarado and performed by Marco Staffi. 
Dead Familia. Dear hermano, again, people are being taken away. I read the news of kids like your daughter and son, like our family, our neighbors. They wake in a state of temporary that lasts longer and longer and longer than we can remember. I read online, the Smithsonian purchased children's drawings of them in camps. Gray beds, red, black, and orange people in them. Archaeology happening in real time. Is remembrance joy? I once asked Abuela, she said, it takes work until it becomes second nature to you, like breathing, like knowing the earth gave you a voice to sing across generations like this. In deiner Luhu, in deiner Luhu, kum kaik in kashaik in deiner Luhu, in deiner Luhu. The clouds look like they're going on forever. Do they ever die? Or are they constantly reincarnating? Life, aquí, a deep possibility of memories, a translation of living, a brief swell of air along us, aguero's needles, the way we eat alive. But, hermano, there are still camps, and when I'm eating a fruit salad, I crunch into the body of lettuce. The crispness has a cost. But all of this always did, remember? Dear cuñada, when I die, plant me into a guava tree. I want to give gifts, cuñada, that I couldn't get enough of. Have your kids open their hands, cuñada, to the light and shade. How cool and hot they feel. How weightless they are. Like when you don't feel your hair on your body. There's a weight to a cuñada. Science says it weighs about an ounce or two, as much as four guava. But since I have long hair, it'll be at least a basket full, cuñada. You know children are in cages and expected to defend themselves in legal court? Your son Benny asked me, do memories make us human? Cuñada, I told him, sometimes we have to be content with having questions unanswered. How we became human has many origins around the world, Cuñada. Some say we were born from clay. Others say we came from corn. Some say we fell from the sky. Others say we are living in a dream. Cuñada, I don't want this dream where kids, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters are inside for-profit cages and call it law. Something is always happening around us, Cuñada. I'm sitting in front of a burger joint where people are happily eating double cheeseburgers, the street lights are turning green, a mother is pushing a stroller, and I'm eating guava, Cuñada, a sweetness that varies, but I can't wake up my tongue to taste it. I have to close my eyes, teeth the seeds, flesh the meat, and let the weightlessness dissolve, cuñada. Dear hermana, when my nephew was born, he was soft, tiny, and quiet. I was afraid to hold him, but then I did, and I cried. He comes from immigrants. 
The word comes from the Latin migrare, to move from one place to another. Sentences are all immigrants. Look at them moving to the page, to eyes, to brains, to throats. An Amas citizenship paper saying she's legal here, though Earth never refused. I look at my nephew's drawing of our family on my phone, outlines in brown and black crayons. Did you know leaves build altars for the sun from their bodies, luminance eaten daily? When trees are chopped down to make paper, their bodies sing out in O's. We have been writing on the sun all this time, how it speaks a lesson in instance, nourishment, joys, reactions, violences, occurrences of the present outside. I can't unsee everything. It keeps saying, I'm alive. Dear Amma, how do you hold the brokenness of your life? I recall you saying you're afraid of people, minds, and death. If people without papers come into this country, ice disappears them. Like trans women who want to be free, to have a voice, who don't want to be erased so no one will know what happened to them. I had enough, Amma. So I went to the biggest protests I've ever been part of. Students from all over California came, sang, chanted, farmers carrying red flags with a black eagle in the middle, Mexica dancers dressed as eagles and jaguars saying, Nantli, Tolen Atur Moyolo, Ika Twaeli, Tehere Mecha, A river of humanity washed over the streets into the city square. Speeches were full of fruit, some bitter, mostly sweet. It overcame the crowd and me. During all of this, I finally understood my tia's name, Esperanza, hope. I let the word swallow me like how it feels being inside the ocean. I yelled with everyone, give them back, give them back. My scream potent as cardamom in the throat. But then I saw drones above us, cops with guns surrounding the buildings. I felt like a word on a page in a US history book. You said on October 2nd, 1968 in Mexico City, students, workers, and the poor protested saying, we don't want Olympics, we want a revolution. More than 600 students were massacred. Names on a chalkboard erased. The guns and drones and more guns pointing down at them, at us. I started to vanish in the faces of the crowds, the children on their parents' shoulders. Then something happened. Nothing. The speeches were finished, and they told everyone, fight. Fight for the future, for the children, for your parents, your family the person holding your hand. People cheered. It felt like everything was possible. The streets are ours, and I became a Whitman song. Oh me, oh life, that I am here. A time of angels, a weightlessness took me, and here we all are, except for the people who are still in camps who are slowly being forgotten in posters on city walls, in newspapers, 
Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the family's photos back at home. I still have that feeling from the city center square, but it's broken from living history, from reading about all the people who disappeared in the 20th century from wars, governments, cops, unsolved mysteries, and who are still disappearing. After all of it, I feel like Kuryashaki, the Aztec goddess of the Milky Way, who was butchered by her brother, Huitzilopochtli, the god of war. She lived on in perseverance, but in pieces. Ama, I guess to know the whole, we must be broken. And to let the process of healing transform us, like Kintsugi, the centuries-old Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with gold. It shines the way stars do, how it's fractured but still gleams and holds everything like you still do all these years. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.